You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Alex Korb. Alex is a neuroscientist, writer, and coach, and he is the author of the best-selling book, The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. Um, I did read that book when it came out in 2015. Uh, so that was a while ago. My, my memories of the book are not as precise as I would like, but I have recently read the Upward Spiral Workbook, which Alex kindly sent me. And, um, I um, would like to talk to you, Alex, uh, in general about your um, approach to uh, the problem of depression. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to great to be here. Glad we could connect. So, when and why did you first become interested in this topic? Um, yeah, well, I've always, I realized, sort of been interested in mood and emotions and how that connects to our behaviors. Um, just, I've always sort of been emotional. Uh, and I kind of wondered, like, why is it that sometimes I feel like, you know, stuck and stressed? And other times, it's really easy to feel happy and confident and motivated. And sometimes you do things you don't want to do. But other times, it's easy to take decisive action. And also it seems harder for some people and easier for other people. And I just, uh, that was just always fascinating to me. And it wasn't really until I got to college that I started to understand like, oh, this is all of because what's happening in the brain. Uh, although th there were some inklings of it a little bit before I got to college because my mom is a psychiatrist and she actually got interested. Uh, she's a psychoanalyst actually, even, even more so uh, in her training. And she started to get interested in the brain and she would just sort of bring up at the dinner table, <laughs> these sort of interesting things that she learned. And I found that fascinating how like our emotions and our actions could be explained by like little chemical changes uh, and electrical changes that are going on in the brain. And the more I learned about neuroscience in college, the more fascinated I became. And uh, I started to, to take classes on, you know, addiction, like, why do we get stuck in addiction? What is what's happening in the brain that makes it too hard to overcome these impulsive habits? Um, and after college, I started working at the Brain Mapping Center at UCLA, 
using functional MRI to try and look at people's brains to see uh, what's actually going on while they're thinking different things or making different choices. And uh, it was, you know, all of it was like very interesting and fascinating. Uh, but ultimately, I realized I wanted to, to use that information, not just to understand the brain better, but to actually try and help people. So you say that you yourself are emotional. And I, I do remember in the upward spiral, you talked about your own periods of depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, could you say a little bit more about your own depressions? And when, for example, how the some of the kinds of insights that you gained um, helped you or... or what you, how you came to understand more about your yourself and your own moods? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting uh, about depression because, like, you know, depression is a diagnosis, um, and I've never actually been diagnosed with depression, <laughs> uh, but just sort of looking back on my experiences and from what I know about it, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's interesting. Like, yeah, there was that period in, uh, uh, in college where I remember it, like everything just felt really difficult and I was really, um, pessimistic about the future. And I had a lot of anxiety and, uh, I didn't really understand why and it just sort of slowly went away after a few uh um months and i kind of look back on that and i'm like oh that was <laughs> that's probably feeling depressed because my uh girlfriend had broken up with me and i had uh, a lot of uh um uh, tooth pain so bad that i had to get a a root canal so i was in pain and i was alone and also, it was the, the winter time. So, uh, you know, light levels can affect your mood. And I was finishing, uh, about to finish my time in, in college. So this wonderful experience that I had was about to be over. And I was about to enter, you know, another period of adulthood with a lot of uncertainty. And uh, from all the things I've learned, and I, I now recognize like, oh, yeah, those are all little elements that contribute to a downward spiral because they uh, they start to change your brain activity and chemistry uh, and in ways that start to change your perceptions of the world. They start to change your thoughts and, uh, and that can become very self-reinforcing because once you start to pay more attention to everything that could go wrong, and how you don't have control over that, well, then that increases stress, it decreases your mood, and it makes it more likely that you'll pay attention to the negative information and things around you. And even though there might be uh, people in your life that support you, there might be positive activities in your life, your brain just starts to do a worse job of like, paying attention to them uh, because they just so don't bring that same spark of joy 
that they used to. And even when you do start to pay attention to the positive things in your life, it's often to just compare it to, oh, that's not as enjoyable as it used to be. Uh, or like, oh, I'm worried that I'm not going to find joy in that again. So even those times when you do start to pay attention to the positive things, it can have a negative outcome because it leads to disappointment or or more worry. Is that, have you had further bouts of depression since your college time? I assume you're kind of in your 30s or 40s now. Yes, I just turned 42. Get um, off my lawn. <laughs> yes, exactly. And yes, I just moved to a house in the suburbs. So now I have a lawn to yell at kids to get off of. Um, uh, no, I mean, you should get off my lawn oh, for being only 42. Oh, I'm, I apologize. That's the way this relationship goes, Alex. <laughs> I see. You have a very youthful voice. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, uh, um, yeah, I mean, there's uh, definitely been times where I've felt uh, demotivated and um, really had a dark outlook about the future and where things um, just that I used to enjoy just didn't seem as enjoyable anymore. Um, and I, uh, the reason why I sometimes hesitate to classify those as depression is because I've come to understand depression is a, uh, a continuum. Uh, the diagnosis of depression is very different from what depression actually is in the brain. Uh, the diagnosis of depression is, you know, a set of symptoms in black and white. And you can check off, like, do you have these? And you have these for a uh, a number of, for at least, you know, at least five of these symptoms for a number of weeks. Then, yep, you have depression. Uh, but there are nine different <laughs> symptoms. And so you only need five of them. So two people could be depressed and it could look very different. Uh, so I wasn't concerned really with whether it reached a diagnosable level or not um, because you know that might really be really important for insurance companies um, or sometimes it might be important uh, for doctors to help keep track of it uh, but I think uh, we sometimes do ourselves a disservice by like focusing on like this bright line, black or white depiction of it as like, oh, you're depressed. You need to take medication and fix it because you're sick. Or, oh, you're just on the other side of this line. Like, oh, no, you're not depressed. You're fine. Suck it up and get on with your life. Uh, it's, it's much more helpful to think of it as a uh, continuum. And so there have definitely been um, darker periods of my life, which... I assume at some points perhaps met those uh, um, uh, met those diagnosable levels of depression for at least a couple weeks. Um, but that's also one of the things that has always fascinated me about the brain is that what is it that for some people causes them to get stuck in depression, even though their lives are pretty good. And then, Furthermore, what is it that allows some people to then get out of it 
even though maybe nothing in their life has really changed while other people remain stuck uh, for months or even years. And, and that's what I um, wanted to, uh, to study in my PhD program. I thought, well, surely there must be something about the brain that we could measure that would say like, oh, yep, like you're depressed or you're not depressed or like, oh, even if you are depressed, we could say, ah, you should take this medication because that's going to help you get better or not. And it turns out that it's actually much more complex than that, that there's nothing technically wrong with the brain in depression. Uh, and and that's sort of one of the things uh, what, that led to the, one of the reasons why I, I stopped paying attention so much to, well, do I technically have depression or not? Because it is often not very relevant. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, I know your focus is on the small changes that people can make for themselves, mm -hmm. the small kind of non-clinical changes that may, that will help many people and may help particular individuals mm -hmm. to ease their depression or cure their depression. One of those things, by the way, is um, is to stop is not just is to stop focusing so much on the diagnosis, or rather, to to pay attention to why the diagnosis is so important to you. Because to some people, um, they're getting a diagnosis of depression, like you know, it's just a number. It's just like weighing, putting yourself on a scale if you're trying to lose weight. Like your weight is just a number. And yet some people are like, oh, I don't want to see the number. You know, oh, the number means this. Like, well, the number is whatever the number it is. Um, but what you do with that information is what makes it either helpful or harmful. So mm -hmm. some people might take a, you know, depression quiz and they would score really high and they would use that and, you know, they might have a diagnosable level of depression and they might use that as an excuse to give up. Like, ah, I knew it. I'm depressed. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. What's the point in even trying? And in that case, like, well, <laughs> it's not really helpful uh, to get that diagnosis. Or sometimes people use that diagnosis to think, ah, there's something really wrong with me. And the only solution is to, you know, take medication or to see a psychiatrist because they need to fix me. Um, and that's, at least a step in the right direction because you're, you're trying to do something about it. Um, but the most useful way to look at that diagnosis, depression, or those, those levels of depression are just as a reason to treat yourself with more compassion. Like, Oh, there's nothing wrong with me. My brain is just stuck in this pattern of depression. Um, it's like getting a diagnosis of a broken arm. Like, oh, I'm not just like a whiny little complainer that my arm is hurt. Like it's, it's broken. Okay. Well, like, let me start getting treatment and starting to do something about it. Uh, and so a lot of times when I talk to clients, they are so almost invested in trying to prove to me that they are you know, really depressed and that their brain is broken. And, uh, 
um, that's, I often sometimes I'm like, okay, okay, fine. Let's assume, okay, your, your brain is broken. Like, okay, what do you want to do now? Mm. Yeah, I, I can, I can certainly, um, confirm that a diagnosis need not in itself mean anything mm -hmm. because, uh, when I was, when I was, I've had a few bouts of what I would consider to be depression in my life. I think the last one ended in early 2018. Um, since then, I sometimes get anxious about things, and I'll, we'll maybe talk about that later, about anxiety and its relationship with depression. But I really have not been depressed since early 2018. Um, and um, I even though my mood fluctuates a lot and sometimes I feel more down, you know, and sometimes I then some days I feel more cheerful than mm -hmm. others. But one kind of way that I can tell that I'm not depressed is I'm at my sister's right now. My sister, who has been intensely depressed, probably, well, she says ever since our mother died, which mm -hmm. was in 1978. Mm. Um, and, uh, I have in the past often found ex her extremely hard to be around because she can be very, very negative. Mm -hmm. And I find it contagious. And I can really tell when I'm in a mentally healthy place where I just feel unaffected by her mood. So I'm just like, well, it's my sister often complaining and being very negative and dramatizing and catastrophizing. And I still do take a few steps, like I, I do uh, keep some aspects of my life. I tell her things on a need-to-know basis, mm -hmm. and I, okay, I sometimes lie to her also about things. <laughs> because if I told her, for example, uh, you know, the situation with the Arrow funding, that we don't yet have major funding, I took over this failing magazine, and it's... Well, let's hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. Worth, no, she doesn't <laughs> listen to this podcast. And it's, it's, it's now afloat, but it's uh, in, still in very precarious circumstances, uh -huh. etc. And that makes me an somewhat anxious. Right. But I know if I told my sister, she would be like, Oh, God, that's terrible. You must be so worried. That sounds so awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I basically don't tell her. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, if she asks for specifics, I lie. Yeah. Um, but I, I can tell that I'm just feel quite healthy because I don't feel any danger of being suck, of being kind of suctioned back down mm -hmm. into the depressive pit. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's sort of, um, I mean, that's, that's great that you're in that situation. Um, but the, uh, it's also helpful to sort of recognize that like, I mean, and you sort of recognize it too, like you have these sort of depressive tendencies uh, and that you're, you know, worried that you might get sucked back down. And that's another reason why I think it's so helpful to not think of it as this like binary state and instead more of a continuum. Uh, mm. Because I, I'm, yeah. I'm not worried I'll get sucked back down, actually. I'm pretty confident that... Um, I'm pretty confident that I won't have another depression unless some major adverse life event happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm 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 feeling pretty resilient. Um, yeah, wonderful. I've been feeling pretty resilient since 
since 2018. So what what changes what changes do you think you made that that led to that resilience? So I guess I think the most major change, and this may sound really odd, mm-hmm. um, but I think the most major change was going to India. Mm-hmm. So I spent um, two years in India, or around two years in total, uh, with a few breaks f- in 2016 and 2017. My parents died when I was fairly young, um, and I had um, had never had any contact with um, the Indian half of my roots. Um, and um i uh it it's for for various complicated reasons which i don't want to go into here because mm-hmm. i am going to do a, a whole podcast about parsi zoroastrianism and my parsi roots mm-hmm. but um basically i wasn't able to ever go back and then in 2016 it became possible for me to go back i re- was able to relinquish my former Pakistani citizenship hmm. and go to travel to India. And it was incredibly um, healing. It really felt as though a part of my self that I had been, that had been ignored and neglected and forgotten since I was 11 um, was, it, I, it was a very life enriching to me. Um, and I know that's not a typical and probably a really, really crunchy, touchy feely way of explaining it. Yeah, but that, but that's the kind of thing that I think is really important for people to understand because, um, I know a lot of people always ask me, uh, or they say things like, ah, well, she had real, you know, um, chemical depression whereas like oh this other person just you know it's just situational or you know and that is an artificial distinction (laughs) because all of the experiences you have and the thoughts that you have in your brain and the habits that you're stuck in like those are all related to the chemical and electrical activity in key brain circuits and uh, and so sometimes when someone has an experience like yours and you'd be like, Oh, well, I had this life changing experience and I, you know, was finally able to like, let go of this grief and reconnect with who I was. And people would be like, Oh, well, I guess you didn't really have chemical depression or not. And I would say like, well, no, like those experiences that you had, changed your brain in profound and subtle ways. And oftentimes, these sort of real world experiences, we dismiss as, as not really being real neuroscience. We look at things like antidepressant medications, like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or neuromodulation techniques like uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And we look at those and say, ah, well, if you really have depression and it's in your brain, like we need to target these brain circuits with these high-tech interventions developed in a lab. Uh, but all of the experiences that you have in your life and the actions you take change your brain activity and chemistry. And often 
these sort of what I would call low tech solutions, like going on a trip or reconnecting with your family or practicing mindfulness or getting some sunlight. Often these sort of low tech interventions modulate these key brain circuits in even more powerful and nuanced ways than these so-called high-tech interventions that were developed in a lab. And so when I wrote The Upward Spiral, and it's it's funny reading the like the Amazon reviews that like some people say, like, ah, well, this isn't anything new. Of course, yeah, you know that sleep is good for you and exercise is good for you. And I was like, I'm not trying to come up with some totally new treatment. I'm just trying to explain that like, hey, all of these things that you don't think of as neuroscience, like these are actually changing your brain. So for many people, they, well, they're depressed and they think, ah, well, the only thing to do is just sit and wait uh, to go see a psychiatrist and, and then sit and wait for the medication to start working. And I have nothing wrong, nothing against medication. Medication is a very powerful way to change the serotonin circuits in the brain and, and the dopamine circuits and other things. Uh, but they are not the only way. They're just one of dozens of different things that you can do. Uh, and different people's brains are responsive to different things. And for some people, ah, if you just went running every day, like my ex-girlfriend, if she just went for a run every day, she wouldn't have had so much overwhelming anxiety. Uh, and other people, it's just a matter of, you know, connecting more with the important people in your life. And for m many people with depression, it's some combination. Yeah, you take some medication and you uh, make some life changes. But we often have this like binary thought that like, oh, depression is either chemical and there's something wrong with me or there's nothing wrong with me at all and I need to just snap out of it. <laughs> And the truth is a combination of the two that there are parts of your brain and yourself that you can't necessarily change, uh, but there are many parts of your brain that you can change. And, uh, and I would like to provide people the menu of options of like, well, here are the things that you can try to start to change to see how that will actually impact your life. I think, um, I mean, I, I do want to get on in a moment to your ideas about the small incremental changes mm -hmm. that that together can um, begin to create a kind of upward spiral, mm -hmm. as you call it. But I think it is important to acknowledge um, that life situation is important here. Mm -hmm. So I know there have been studies done on anxiety and depression in uh, office workers mm -hmm. um, that have shown that at every kind of step up the hierarchy mm -hmm. in something like the civil service, for example, mm -hmm. um, their people are less anxious, less stressed and less depressed. The, the, the stereotype of the stressed out CEO is precisely wrong. Um, because the higher up you are, the more options you have, the more security you have, 
the less financial anxiety you generally have. Mm-hmm. And all of those things um, are strongly correlated with less uh, anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, correlated, of course, it could be the other way around. It could be that people who are naturally not prone to anxiety and depression are more are also more able to take advantage of the opportunities that come in their way, mm-hmm. um, more able to be driven, etc. But it does feel, at least from my own life, that there's strong correlation between circumstances and the depression. Yeah. So the, the kind of thing of the person who is puzzled by their own depression, I've come across this often because they say, my life is actually really wonderful. I don't understand why I feel this way. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to minimize that, but um, that that is a real, that is real. Um, and some people are very, very miserable despite having an on paper wonderful life. Right. Um, and I, I think my sister is actually one of those, one of those people. Yeah. Um, well, so but, I'm just actually sort of confused then, because in, in one sense you said, well, the research shows that depression gets less as you go up, say, the civil service ladder. But then you just said from your own experience, it seems no, no, many I, people. I find it, uh, yes, I have noticed that many, that there are people who have that. Mm-hmm. But I think the other type of depression is, well, I don't know, is it more common or not? The, the type that I empathize with, which is, mm. well, I'm anxious because I don't have a guaranteed salary after the next six right. months. Um, and I'm anxious because my income level is low enough that if anything goes wrong, I won't be able to pay the rent. Yeah. Um, so I feel that the anxiety is kind of justified. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've always felt that about my depressions as well. Yeah. I feel I'm depressed because, um, of X, Y, and Z in my life situation. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've never been able to empathize with this feeling of, my life looks wonderful on paper. Why do I feel yeah. so miserable? Well, that's a, I mean, that's a, a fascinating thing and one that is very common that we, uh, and, and like the words that you used were, well, I find that one type of anxiety and depression, like I'm able to be empathic towards it because it's the other word you used was justified. And I think we have mm. this sense that, oh, well, some people are depressed because their lives are depressing and they deserve empathy because it's justified. And other people, their lives are totally fine and they're just depressed because they're big whiners who are weak and they just need to snap oh, out of it. No, that's not what <laughs> I meant to imply. I mean, I, I think that those, the fact that your depression feels inexplicable to you, mm-hmm. if you have a depression that you feel is inexplicable, mm-hmm. given the kind of uh, general comfort of your life circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, that must be a terrible experience to have also. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I... Well, um, but there are also people who, you know, are in war zones or who have had terrible yeah. lives who aren't depressed mm. and anxious. Uh, yeah. And what the yeah. research sort of really shows is that, um, you know, these traumatic life events and the circumstances we are in uh and you know even the way our our parents raised us and the genes that we have these all influence the development of our brain circuits that contribute to getting stuck in depression and anxiety like the thinking 
circuits and the feeling circuits and the habit and reward and decision-making circuits. Um, so these are all influenced by our, our genetics and our early childhood experiences, particularly traumatic experiences and our current life circumstances. Uh, but uh, they're not uh, influenced as strongly as we think. Uh, like the, just because you have a lot of stuff, terrible stuff happened to you and you had terrible parents and you're in a terrible situation now doesn't guarantee that you're depressed. It, it certainly raises the likelihood that you get stuck in depression. Um, and just because you, uh, you make more money, well, that's certainly helpful in a lot of situations, but that's not necessarily going to protect you entirely from getting depression. Uh, and, uh, oftentimes the, uh, I find it sort of most fascinating with, with people who are, um, you know, smart and successful and driven and yet still depressed because people who have a lot of external circumstances that are really difficult, it sort of makes sense to us, right? Oh, it makes sense why they're to be depressed. Um, but, uh, people who are, you know, smart and successful and have all these seemingly good parts of their life, it doesn't make sense to us. And it, it's because depression doesn't mean that there's something wrong with your brain. You have all of these different neural circuits and the, the tuning of each circuit it varies from person to person. Some people worry more, some people worry less, some people are more decisive, some people are less decisive. And the circumstances of your life uh, interact with the specific um, dynamics of your brain. And for some people, that can make them get stuck in this pattern of uh, activity and reactivity between the thinking, feeling, action, and reward circuits in their brain. And the the way that I like to uh, think about it is like a traffic jam. Uh, I don't know what traffic is like where you are, but I'm in Los Angeles where traffic is terrible. Uh, and there are there are many times where you're driving down the road and it's, you know, three o'clock on a Saturday and all of a sudden there's like a terrible, you know, traffic jam and you're just stuck on the freeway inching along. And that's kind of what depression is like. And traffic jams make sense to us when they are caused by some specific thing. Like, oh, there was a car accident and they had to close two lanes. Oh, of course. Yes. And now there's a lot of, now we've got to squeeze past them. And once we're past the car accident, then the, the traffic will ease and we'll be driving again. That's how most people conceptualize of depression. And that's true. Like if there's something that goes wrong, changes the dynamics, causes a traffic jam. Uh, but you've probably had this experience. Many people have this experience in large modern cities that you're driving, you're all of a sudden stuck in a traffic jam and you're inching along for a few minutes and then the traffic just clears up and it's gone. And there was no construction. There's no lane closure. There was no uh, accident. It just, you were stuck in this traffic and then it just disappeared. And we 
we tell ourselves like, oh, well, they, you know, there must have been an accident before they just cleared it out of the way or they just finished doing construction and they just opened up the lane. Uh, but even that sort of illustrates that there sometimes can be a cause to the traffic jam. But then once it starts to form, that pattern becomes self-reinforcing such that, you know, there's a standing wave of stopped traffic. And just because you remove the cause, like, ah, you remove the accident, you remove the, the lane closure, that's just like someone got depressed because they lost their job and then they got a new job. That doesn't suddenly mean that the traffic is going to go away, that they're suddenly going to no longer be depressed. And the, the more complicated truth is that there doesn't actually need to be some instigating incident. Traffic jams can just happen when there are enough cars on the road or if the road you know, isn't designed perfectly. And, and that sort of illustrates my point of what I mentioned about, you know, genetics and, and, and trauma. Uh, in some cities where the, you know, the roads are really nicely designed, eh, they're less likely to get stuck in, in traffic jams. But in other cities, uh, the roads are all a jumble and the curve all over the place. And like, you know, once there are a few too many cars on the road, there's a huge traffic jam. And that's like those genetics and early childhood experiences that I mentioned that those genes and your early traumas influence the development of certain brain circuits to make it more likely that you would get stuck in a pattern of depression and anxiety. Uh, but whether or not you actually do get stuck is also a matter of, well, what are your current life circumstances and what that which includes your coping habits and your support systems and your uh, your mental framing of the situation. And so while certain things you can't change, like the genes you have or what your childhood traumas were, many things about your current circumstances, you can start to change, like whether you're blaming all of your problems on the past that you can't change or how you are focusing on the positive things in your life or what specific habits you are engaging in to deal with that stress. That's a, a really wonderful analogy. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank um, you. I want to just clarify before we go on that although I gave the kind of anxious version of my uh, current life, mm -hmm. there is also the less anxious version, which is... Um, I, I, you know, I've been handed this opportunity mm -hmm. to make something of a really interesting magazine and podcast, and um, it's it's an exciting time, and great things might happen. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, obviously, it's in, uh, some financial instability uh, goes along with that, as mm -hmm. it always does with startups and kind of small independent businesses yeah. and things and in their and early I'm, stages. And I'm glad you brought up that caveat. Because uh, those are two parts of the same thing mm -hmm. that a lot of times people, they're like, you know, they're a founder and they're starting this startup or they're thinking of writing a novel or changing jobs or something. And it creates a lot of feelings because there is uncertainty about what will happen in the future. And the limbic system, which is the brain's emotional circuitry, where the, the 
amygdala is and the hypothalamus is, which might be regions that people have heard of. Um, these regions respond a lot to uncertainty, particularly uncertainty that is potentially uncontrollable with big consequences. And you feel things. Now, whether you feel anxiety or whether you feel excitement, both of those things are activation of the same neural circuitry. But if you're focused on uh, how everything could potentially go wrong and you would look foolish and lose all of your money, ah, well, then you're probably experiencing that as anxiety. Uh, if, on the other hand, you're focused on, oh, everything that could go right and all of the things that you have control over that could contribute to uh, your success, well, then you're probably feeling excitement. But both of those things are true. There are lots of things out of your control that could lead to negative consequences. And there are lots of things under your control that could lead to positive consequences. And both of those things are true at the exact same time. It is just at some times, particularly when you are feeling stressed or overwhelmed, you pay more attention to the negative things that you don't have control over. And when you're feeling happier, you pay attention to the positive things and you take action and control over the things that you have. And that's sort of the essence of an upward spiral or a downward spiral that once you start to pay attention to the negative, then it increases your anxiety, which makes you pay more attention to the negative and you get caught in these old bad habits and so on and so forth. Uh, but you can, you, you can't control whether some random anxious thought pops into your head like, oh, I've made a huge, terrible mistake and I'm going to lose all my money. Uh, all that you can control is what you then do with that information and where you redirect your attention and your efforts to. I, I really like, um, so one thing that I like about your emphasis on the small positive habits mm -hmm. um, is that many of the things that we think are going to bring us happiness or security mm -hmm. um, or contentment or fulfillment or whatever else are, mm -hmm. uh, they are absolutely outside our control um, mm -hmm. yeah. in, in most kind of direct and even indirect ways. So mm -hmm. it's uh, quite outside my control. Uh, whether or not people like my writing yeah. or my podcast or mm -hmm. whether they buy ARIO or fund ARIO or, um, and, uh, th those are just, those are just a couple of examples, but there are many others. Yeah. So, like falling you know, whether in or not love. people, like falling yeah, in love, for example, people, you can't yeah. control whether somebody falls in love with you. So it might be really important to you to find someone to be in a relationship, but, it's out of your control and it creates a lot of fear. And for some people, they're then, they go in the downward spiral and their choices are then guided by their fear. Where like, ah, I know the easiest way to avoid rejection is to just not try to be in a relationship. <laughs> and your brain will go on autopilot. It's like, ah, let me just avoid all of this unnecessary frustration and whatever. And the only reason that you would subject yourself to that uncertainty and anxiety and potential for heartbreak is because deep down, you know, ah, but that's what I want. So I'm going to take these actions of, you know, 
uh, reaching out to people and going on dating apps, not just to subject myself to unnecessary disappointment and heartbreak, but because experiencing that anxiety is the only way to get where I am trying to go. And unless you have a clear sense of what actually is important to you, in a sense, what is worth being temporarily unhappy for? What is worth the anxiety? Then you're always going to be controlled by your moment-to-moment feelings. And you, with your business, you've recognized, ah, yes, it causes me anxiety, but it's worth it. So you're not just torturing yourself for no reason. You are torturing yourself for some valued, important reason that allows your prefrontal cortex, the sort of long, long-term goal-oriented part of the brain, to just overcome temporarily uh, these deeper level regions that are experiencing anxiety and want to get stuck in bad habits. Yeah, I think also that there's um, there's there's kind of two different sorts of forms of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the satisfaction of doing, which you focus on quite a lot in the book on mm-hmm. activities that are pleasurable in the moment. Mm-hmm. So for me, the ultimate of those activities is dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, dancing is a a, a, a bliss state, a, a state of, you know, good. When I'm dancing well, it's a state of complete um, chick sent me high in flow. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, but there are also the, the pleasures of having, the satisfactions of having done. So running is pretty much the opposite of dancing <laughs> in that dancing is wonderful in the moment, but afterwards it's gone. Mm, right. And I have done some dance performances that have uh, there there have been videos of my dance performances, and that mm-hmm. enables you to kind of keep that pleasure for for longer. But mostly, dance is something that is completely ephemeral. After it's finished, there's nothing to show for it; it's gone. Yeah. And I've therefore never found it really. I have never personally found it very useful in conquering depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it enriches my life, nevertheless. Right. So it's it's not like everything in my life to be worthwhile must contribute to um, staving off depression, uh-huh. um, but um, or preventing depression. But I, when I'm depressed, I I still really enjoy dancing just as intensely. Uh-huh. But I don't find it helpful with my depression because of this feeling that I have that. The dance is there in the moment, mm-hmm. um, and I can extend that moment a bit by writing about it, mm-hmm. and um, which I have done. I've written a, a book about dance, the dance experience, but also, um, but mostly, it's really its own self-contained thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas the pleasures of having done um, are rather are rather different. So running, for example. I find absolutely horrible in the moment. Uh-huh. I hate running. Right. Um, and I, I actually can't do it unless I do the opposite of what I aim to do in dance or in activities I enjoy, uh-huh. which is complete absorption and focus on the activity. 
Yeah. I can't run without multitasking. I have to listen to audiobooks and podcasts and only ones that are very that seem entertaining and frivolous and mm -hmm. could not possibly be related to my work in any way. Uh -huh. That's the only way I can run. Yeah. Um I run by listening mostly to sci-fi. Um <laughs> sci-fi novels. Uh -huh. And um just trying to keep my my mind off the actual experience in that moment. Right. Um I do try to look around at the nice scenery and stuff like that, but mm -hmm. um but mostly I try to just uh be elsewhere as much as possible during that period of running. Mm -hmm. But afterwards the satisfaction of having done with running is quite strong. Um and I feel that satisfaction even more when I tackle kind of work things. Mm -hmm. Um you know if there's some thing in the, the in the magazine that needs to be improved but it's a difficult thing to get my head around how to how uh -huh. to kind of make a start on tackling it then if i go and tick that thing off my to-do list that really gives me a boost that feels to me like it's more efficient at stopping depression from right. having a chance to rear its head well and that's it gives me self a satisfaction with myself the pleasure right. of kind of having done Right. Um, and, and that's partially perhaps because you, your brain circuits related to, uh, goals might be much, you know, more reactive than other people. You might be a much more goal oriented person. Um, and that's neither good nor bad. That's just, that's who you are. And in some instances in your life, that contributes to you your amazing success and in other places of your life it might be getting in your way of your happiness um and the key aspect i think of of what i'm trying to help people to understand is that like you don't have full and total control over yourself but you do have certain tendencies and sometimes those tendencies in certain situations are helpful in which case great use them as helpful tools. And in other cases, they get in the way of your happiness. And they're just tools. And just like a hammer is a tool, a hammer is a very useful tool for doing a lot of things. But it is not, you know, it's useful for putting up walls if you're building a house. But when it comes time to painting, it gets in the way. And you could look at this tool and be like, ah, oh, this stupid hammer is useless. And then you throw it away. Like, no, like, you have tendencies in your brain that are very useful. They just might not be useful at this very specific moment in time. And so you shouldn't get mad at yourself for having that tendency. You shouldn't get throw it away. You should just put it back in your tool belt and use another tool. And if you don't have another tool, because that's the only tool, aka habit, that you've been practicing for the last 20 years, well, then it might be time to develop a new tool. But the the habits that we have are things that unfortunately, when we're feeling depressed, we criticize ourselves. Like, for example, having an emotional brain. Having a brain that is more emotionally reactive gives you more depth of experience and joy in life. But it can also enhance the impact of, of failure and disappointment and loneliness. And it's just like, uh, 
you know, driving a Ferrari or something. <laughs> like it has amazing, uh, acceleration, it has amazing brakes. Sometimes that's exhilarating. Sometimes that's terrifying. And you could be like, ah, oh, I just wish I didn't have a car that went so fast or stopped so hard. Uh, but like, no, you should appreciate the car, aka the brain that you have for all the amazing things that it does. And for when it gets in the way, you should just look for alternative ways of getting around that or alternative tools and habits that you can develop. Hmm. So um, let's let's get on a little bit to the tools and, and habits. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, I... I kept feeling as I was reading the workbook, I kept remembering, um, I, I, I ascribe this, this quotation to Samuel Johnson, who is one of my absolute heroes. Um, but I've actually not been able to find it in Johnson's writing. So I may be uh-huh. wrong about that. If anyone who is listening does know the source, please let me know. Or if I've just misremembered it and made it up, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> then please also let me know. But, um, I think that Johnson once said, uh, men often are required to be reminded than informed, which I find mm. a really useful yeah. um, thing. And I think that I, there's, there isn't anything really uh, new in the workbook, but it's all useful reminders. Right. And, and the way I try and remind people is that like they know, oh yeah, I've heard exercise is good for you and changing your sleep patterns and whatever. But like particularly if you're a, a smart, successful person, you probably place too much information on knowing and understanding. Uh and when it comes to this stuff, it's not the knowing of it that's helpful. It's the doing of it. So someone says, you, you know, you should go for a walk. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Walking's good for you. It doesn't matter that you know it's good for you. <laughs> like, go for a walk. Go outside. And that's, like, that's why I like talking about the neuroscience. Because if you're the type of person who likes to think and understand things, those are great traits generally. But it probably means you also overthink things. And sometimes, and you, you could say like, oh, I don't really see it. How is exercise really going to help? And blah, blah, blah. Like sometimes knowing the neuroscience behind it or knowing that there is neuroscience behind it, you could, you could allow yourself to get out of your own way. And you could say, ah, well, exercise doesn't really feel like it's enjoyable. And I don't really feel like doing it right now. But I know because of the science that it's going to have you know, effects on the dopamine system, and it's going to reduce my stress response. So like, I'm going to do it in the same exact way that if you went to a psychiatrist, and they said, here, take this antidepressant medication, and you were like, um, you know, why should I take this? They're like, well, it's going to help you. I mean, it might have some side effects. And you're like, oh, it has side effects. I don't want to do that. And they're like, ah, but like, it's going to affect the serotonin system in your brain and they're and you're like oh great i'm going to take it and it's going to feel i'm going to feel better right away and they're like ah, no it's going to affect the serotonin system in your brain but it's going to take a little while for those brain circuits to rewire so you might not notice it for you know a week or two uh and that's the story that your psychiatrist would tell you 
about the neuroscience to get you to take this medication that's not going to make you feel better immediately and that might have some side effects. And I just try and take that same story about science and apply it to these other areas of your life. So exercise, for example. Yeah, some people are lucky. They feel amazing with exercise uh, and they just need to be reminded of that. Other people, uh, it takes a little bit longer uh, to harness those benefits. But even if you don't feel them right away, it's still having these effects on the serotonin circuitry in your brain and the dopamine circuitry in your brain, on the uh, the stress release of cortisol. Uh, and so knowing that might help you get out of your own way a little bit and just go for a walk. Yeah, I think also Sam Harris said something very wise about this. We actually worked in this in the same lab for a couple of years when he was a he was a grad student before he wrote his uh, his first book, uh, The End of Faith, and I had just started working in that lab um, as a research associate. Uh, so, yeah, he's a great guy. Oh, that's excellent. Oh, I love Sam. I'm a big fan. He said, talking about depression, he said that in, in this particular area, there's no such thing as a placebo effect mm-hmm. in the sense that, or rather, it doesn't matter whether the effect is placebo yes, or not. Yes, I agree. Um, because, you know, in, in other cases, uh, it can be dangerous. If I, if, you know, I, I drink some herbal tea or something and I think it's curing my cancer and I feel great. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, my cancer is quietly proliferating, mm-hmm. and I'm not. Right. Uh, I'm I'm not having chemotherapy or other therapies I should be having. That's bad. But when it comes to depression, there isn't something below the level of how you feel. How you feel right. is the condition. Yeah. So therefore, if your herbal tea magically stopped you from feeling depressed, yeah, it might be a placebo in the sense that. It's only working for you personally, and it's not something that's scalable. Right. Um, but if it's working for you, it's working for you. It doesn't kind of matter mm-hmm. whether there's science behind it, quote unquote, or not, because um, the feeling better is the point. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. And the only, uh, I'm sort of surprised to hear <laughs> Sam say that because I feel like he's he's really into the the. Um, um, you know, thinking critically about science part, but like, I totally agree with that, that the only problem with that is that it can very quickly lead people to be like, ah, well, then you should just do whatever you feel like and whatever. And like, well, science has already discovered a, a whole array, a whole menu of things that tend to work really well for people in a way that we know is not just the placebo effect. Yes, the placebo effect will also be involved. Like when you take uh, um, Prozac or something, yes, the placebo effect is involved because it's taking a pill. But like we know that it's it's even more than the placebo effect. But you don't actually care. Well, which part of it is the placebo effect? Which part is more than the placebo effect? Uh, the only real problems when it comes to the placebo effect are um, if it's getting in the way of you doing something that would be more beneficial. Like if you're like, no, I'm drinking this tea. I don't need to do all this other stuff. Uh, or if it's potentially dangerous, um, where someone's like, oh, you should 
you know, try this thing or whatever. And you're like, well, is it, has anyone studied? Like, could it be dangerous to me? Uh, and the third thing is if it's like really expensive and someone is trying to sell it to you, like, hey, you should wear this bracelet out of this crystals and it's $5,000 and it's, you know, definitely will help your depression. And like, if, if someone were to try and sell you that same crystal bracelet for $5 and you were like, yeah, I think this might work, like go for it. There's no harm in the placebo effect of buying a $5 crystal bracelet. Like there's, it's not preventing you from doing other stuff. It's not, you know, going to cause harm. But when someone is like, well, here's a $5,000 crystal bracelet, uh, then it's more problematic. Although if you're super rich and you're like, well, I'd rather trade my money for happiness. Like I'm not going to talk you out of it, but like it's really helpful to sort of understand how these things um, fit together. And like, I take, try and take as much advantage uh, of the placebo effect as I can. Sometimes people think it's a dirty word. They think placebo means that something doesn't work. Um, But placebo means it does work. It's the placebo effect. It has an effect. It's just that the reason it works is because you believe that it will work. And it is your brain making these chemical and electrical changes all on its own. Uh, And so, in fact, some of the reasons why I like talking about the neuroscience of exercise is because it enhances the placebo effect. Like, exercise is going to help you, like, regardless of whether you think it's going to help you or not or like social interaction is going to help you regardless when you think of it or not because it's not just the placebo effect but by understanding that it will help you and believing that it will help you and taking those actions anyway then yes you're going to get the benefit the you know the sort of the actual effect and then on top of that you're going to get a bonus placebo effect uh and so you may as well allow your brain to help yourself even more yeah, I like, um, I mean, the other, well, another aspect of the book that I like very much is, is that you don't focus on feeling, on monitoring how you feel, but you focus on actions. Mm-hmm. You know, just take, don't worry about how you feel. Mm-hmm. Just go ahead and take these actions and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in, uh, and I find that very useful. I mean, my own kind of personal mantra when I'm feeling down, um, is or when I'm feeling depressed, quote unquote, although at the moment it's if I'm depressed, it's just I'm feeling down that particular day. So I don't consider that to be a depression. Um, but I, my thing is, what would a non depressed girl do? Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, what would a non depressed person um, do in this situation? Well, non depressed right. person would get up, go for a run and have a healthy breakfast, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'll do, even though I'm just acting the part. I don't feel like doing those things. I don't know if they'll make me feel better, but it's just, I'm going to behave like the non-depressed person. The kind of faking it till you make it, I do find actually quite useful. And and that fake it till you make it um, is really helpful in some ways and really harmful in some ways. (laughs) It's Mm. really harmful when people interpret it to mean like we'll just pretend that you are happy Mm, mm, (laughs) that can undermine you 
Uh, and many people with depression are pretending they're happy all the time and it's exhausting and it's making it harder to get out of it. Uh, but fake it till you make it is helpful in the way that you described it. It was like, ah, well, like if I was feeling happy, like what would I do? My emotions might not immediately follow. I don't have to pretend that I am happy and lie to myself that I am happy. I'm just going to recognize that, you know, my feelings and my actions are different things. And when your feelings, I'm sorry, when your actions are always guided by your moment to moment feelings, you set yourself up for getting stuck in a downward spiral because like, yeah, if you feel good, duh, then you go for a run and then you feel better and you sleep better that night and you do all these other things. And like, great, nothing's a problem. But the moment there's a setback and you feel stressed or anxious or down or demotivated, oh, then you stop doing all these positive things and you get stuck in a downward spiral. And I would say, just bringing this back to something you mentioned earlier about your sense of accomplishment when you go for a run, um, that part of the reason why that feels so good for you and why that's so helpful for you is because you don't want to run, but you know, in a sort of abstract sense, that it will be good for you. And so your moment to moment feelings, the emotional circuitry in your brain is telling you, don't do this, it's boring, it's painful, whatever. But you are allowing this sort of higher level goal, uh, utilizing your prefrontal cortex to intervene. And you're essentially saying like, yeah, I don't feel like going for a run, but I know that it's going to be good for me. And I'm doing this temporary discomfort, not to torture myself for no reason. I am doing this because this is the only way to get where I am trying to go. And so even though it's uncomfortable, you're doing your it's it's a way of treating yourself compassionately. Just like a parent who um you know might withhold sweets from their child. Like why like well the kid wants sweets, why wouldn't you just give him some chocolate? You're like, well, I'm not doing it just to be a jerk. I'm not doing it to be mean. I'm doing it because I know that's going to rot their teeth or they're going to be unhealthy if they don't learn to eat healthy food. And so the, the, the bigger why of why you're doing that is really important. And part of the reason it feels so successful is because you have acknowledged your feelings and you are allowing yourself to be guided by some bigger, more important goal than just your moment to moment feelings. And it's essentially you are asserting your agency in your life that you're like, ah, I could just listen to the depression and, you know, sit around and do nothing and start to feel worse and worse, but I'm not going to, I'm the one who is in charge of my life. Mm, yeah, that's exactly right. That's a feeling that your feelings are not the boss of you. Right. Um, and that ultimately it's an illusion of control because I am a <laughs> right. radical non-believer in free will, yeah. like right. Sam, but yeah. that's at a completely different level. That's like well, saying but, you and I are both made of electrons and quarks or right. something. But um, I, that's how I feel about uh, um, free will is like, I'm like, it, it's an irrelevant thing. Like, who cares? Yeah. Like, it's if you a actually philosophical have free will. question. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, it's not a practical one. Like, if, if people can, that's why sometimes philosophers can get so depressed and like, ah, oh, well, do I really have any control over this? Does any of it really matter? And it's like, 
okay, well, if you want to convince yourself of that, you can, but like, otherwise just take action. And the reason why it's, it's particularly tricky is that if your goal is to be happy, your emotions do matter, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you can't just be fully rational and be like, no, I should do this and do this. Because the whole point of it is like, no, I want to be happy. I want to feel positive emotions. But you can't just be controlled by your moment to moment emotions. You have to find the right balance between those, like going to your job, like you in your job, you're starting this company. There are days where you're like, feeling overwhelmed by anxiety and stress. Does that mean, ah, you should avoid it and quit your job and just, you know, go work at Starbucks? No, you're going to overcome that because there's some big important goal you're getting to. Now, I, should, I should clarify that I'm not starting the uh, Arias okay, right. company, but um, yeah, but the analogy is correct. Right, anyway. the building, yeah. right. And, yeah. But if you felt that way every day for, you know, six months, and you didn't really see the point in it, then hmm, maybe you should start listening to your emotions. And you realize like, ah, I thought this was really important to me, but I realized like, it's not quite right. I need to go in a slightly different direction. And so the it requires you can't over listen to your emotions, you know, every moment to moment fluctuation, but you also can't ignore them when they're trying to tell you like, hey, maybe this isn't the right job for you, or maybe this isn't the right relationship for you. Uh, and by doing these sort of generally helpful things like exercise or mindfulness or uh, um, getting your sleep under control, we start to narrow down like, ah, is this, is this feeling specific to this job that I have or the relationship I'm in? Or is this just like a general feeling of unease because I haven't, you know, gone slept well and I haven't exercised and it allows us to uh, better understand ourselves and what's actually important to us. There were a lot of questions from people on Twitter. So I might, Mm -hmm. don't you know, I think some of these are very long. So I'll just put a couple of them to you. And um, if you feel you have time to answer them quite briefly, then answer them. Otherwise, we'll, <laughs> we'll yeah. um, I just say pass and I'll, I'll take that bit out. But right. so a couple of questions from um, listeners. Um, what, what is the, um, do you think that depression has adaptive properties in an evolutionary sense? Absolutely. Like uh, the depression evolved uh along with the human brain uh you know we have all these brain circuits that evolved to accomplish two things <laughs> to survive and reproduce and there are many times where depression is the most adaptive uh way to survive if you are in an environment that is you know, very violent and that you can't control, well, then you shouldn't, you know, go out exploring and try new things and, uh, um, you know, uh, take risks. Uh, you should just kind of 
not <laughs> do anything and just rely on your oldest habits uh, because habits are are a uh, come from a brain region that's one of the oldest parts of the brain and it's one of the simplest mechanisms that the brain evolved to try and keep us safe based on the principle well i'm alive now so i should just keep doing whatever i have been doing uh and so when you're depressed you're not thinking about your long-term goals. You're just sort of focused on like, well, I'm just going to keep doing the same things. Uh, and that not that won't necessarily get you out of depression, but it's the simplest way to sort of keep things from getting worse. And just by the way, like, because part of that is because like your brain didn't evolve for you to be happy. Like mm -hmm. you care about your happiness, but like... <laughs> Yeah. Your happiness often causes you to take risks. Like people do stupid stuff when they're happy and excited and optimistic and then they get hurt and die. <laughs> like if uh you um just don't do anything, then you're sort of less likely to be at risk. And the way I think of it is actually reminds me of this um, article I read about self-driving cars. And it was like, why do self-driving cars keep running into like really obvious obstructions, like, you know, telephone poles and fire trucks? And the answer is because uh, they, there is a perfectly safe way to make a self-driving car. And that's to have it do nothing, <laughs> right? Like, you could turn it on and press the, the, the accelerator and like, nope, I'm not going anywhere because I'm, that's going to increase my risk from just sitting here. Uh, so anytime you go out and accomplish, trying to accomplish something, you are putting yourself at risk. So then the question is just like, where do you draw the line of like, what is acceptable risk and what is unacceptable risk? Because when it's, you know, it's trying to use its, um, you know, AI vision to decode what this visual scene is in front of it. Like, well, if there's a, it can never be a hundred percent sure that something is, is safe. So where do you draw the line? If it's 99% sure, if it's 99.9% .9 sure, and occasionally it makes mistakes. And what depression is, is it, you know, cranks up the certainty of, you know, it, it changes the the equation. So you're like, well, I'm, you know, not going to take risks. And it's just unfortunate because then it means, well, you, you face other problems because you're not actually, you know, trying to go and accomplish these goals that might be important or essential to you. But that's the, the dynamics of that evolved to try and keep you safe. Thanks. That's, that's, I, I love your analogies. They're Thank very, you. very useful. Um, I think, so there are a couple more. Um, mm -hmm. One is, does medication lead to long-term dependency? Uh, is that something people should be concerned about if they're taking antidepressants? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a, you know, a psychiatrist or pharmacologist, um, but uh, I kind of... Uh, generally when people ask that question, I kind of think it 
it comes from sort of a, a distraction about something that's irrelevant. Like if your um, house is on fire and you have this fire extinguisher, um, you'd be like, ah, I don't want to use this fire extinguisher because yeah, like it might have put out the fire, but like then I'm going to have this whole mess to clean up and like, yeah, the fire's causing a mess and like, but then I'm going to have to clean up the mess. From, okay. Like, well, do you have some other way of putting out the fire that won't cause a mess? Great. Like do that. And if you don't have some other way, then which is, you just have to make a choice, which is a bigger problem, the fire that's burning down your house or the potential mess that it might cause. And this is not to say that it won't be annoying if you have to um, uh, clean up the mess, but like it's kind of irrelevant because uh, it's solving the bigger problem you have. So solve that problem and then worry about the other part later. Um, and so uh, I would say um, I don't, but, but just to put it a little bit at ease, like I don't think there are the same levels of long-term dependency. Uh, it's just that you may, you know, also have to make other changes in your life but the, the, it's sometimes sort of a dangerous question because it's like people are looking for a reason to not take antidepressant medications, just like as if you were looking for a reason to not use your fire extinguisher. Well, if uh, you have some other way to deal with the situation, do it. And that's why as I lay out in the Upward Spiral and the Upward Spiral Workbook, there are dozens of things that you can do that don't rely on uh uh, just going to a psychiatrist. Is going to a psychiatrist helpful? Yes. Is medication potentially helpful? Yes. But they're not the only things that you can do. So even if you do start taking medication, uh, start taking these other steps as well. And then if taking medication uh, sort of becomes a problem in the long term, well, then you'll have started to develop all of these other positive habits to fall back on. And it'll make it easier uh, to uh, come off the medication if you decide that it's necessary. Thanks. Uh, two more quite uh, short questions. Sure. Uh, one is... Um, I'm sure I can provide long answers. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you can. And I, I, I'm delighted with your long <laughs> answers. But I'm aware your own time is, is uh, limited. Um, so one question, uh, someone asks... Um, the hardest part of supporting people suffering from depression is that their mm -hmm. depression causes them to withdraw from people at the moment they most need help. How would you reach out to a friend who is withdrawn into the shell of depression? Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the wrong ways to do it is what a lot of times people do is like tell their friends to do all these helpful things like, hey, you just need to do this or like you should do this or whatever. Um, and then that just sometimes makes them feel uh, more alone because they're like, yeah, moron, like if I could do those things, I would. Uh, so instead, it's it's most helpful to just try um, one, you know, to be compassionate and to realize however frustrated 
you are at them, you know, withdrawing and their, you know, seeming inability to do these positive things, they are even more frustrated by it. Uh, but you can help by sort of just being with them and just letting them know that you care and not being too overreactive to the fact that they don't just, you know, snap out of it right away. Um, but, you know, you can, instead of saying, calling someone be like, hey, is there anything I can do? Well, that puts the mental burden on them. <laughs> instead, you'd be like, hey, I'm gonna, you know, can I come over and we watch, you know, the the football game together? Or like, hey, like, you know, I'm getting some friends, let's go for a hike or what? like, provide them specific options that like you removed a lot of the thinking away from a lot of the barriers and you're not forcing them to do, you're just making it really easy for them uh, to do mm -hmm. and that you're doing it with them as opposed to just telling them things that they should be doing. And also, by the way, just one other thing about that is ask, asking them, just asking them about their experience of it and not trying to fix it unless they ask for help. Just, just it's, which is a very hard thing to do as a friend. You want to stop, fix it for them, but like they, you know, they're frustrated by themselves too. So just asking like, Hey, I noticed it seems like you're struggling. Like what's, what's going on. I just want to let you know that I'm there for you. And if they ask and you can ask like, would you like me to try and help? And if they say, no, I'm just okay. Like all you can do is sort of uh, try sometimes. And it is, I will acknowledge that, yes, it is frustrating. And that's one of the reasons why I got a PhD in it. Thanks. Alex, is there, um, unless there's anything else that you want to say that I haven't given you a chance to say, um, and don't worry, I will put all of your details on how to reach, how to read more of your work into the show notes. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, my final question is, um, what do you think is the, the one kind of little habit or little thing that you can do if you're depressed that is most underrated as a helpful? Um, the most underrated thing, uh, well, I don't know if it's the most underrated, but um, when you're depressed, the, the most powerful thing is to like, well, just start doing stuff. <laughs> uh, like, what were the things you used to do before you were depressed? Like, just start doing them. Don't overthink everything. Well, how is this going to solve everything? Like, just schedule more positive activities into your life. Um, now, I would put that... Uh, also on par with treating yourself with more compassion that uh, like, as I said, sort of earlier, like people are trying to often convince themselves that they're depressed as a reason to be even more critical of themselves that you're broken and you're worthless. I knew it. Uh, but the only thing to do with the information that you are depressed, that's helpful is to treat yourself with compassion in the exact same way that I said that, you know, if you're trying to help someone else with depression, you should treat them with compassion, not compassion as like, Hey, I know it's okay. If you totally give up and do nothing and wallow in it, that's not treating someone the most compassion. The, the, the compassion is like, ah, I know it's difficult. And, you know, 
but there are things in your life that are more important than just how you feel at the moment. Uh, and, but allowing that your feelings are valid and yet do not need to entirely guide and determine your path. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. I love talking about all this stuff because I think a lot of times people just want, they just want the soundbite, like, just tell me what to do, do. And I think understanding it is so important. And uh, and that's why I wrote this book, even though, you know, I when I was first writing The Upward Spiral, the my editor was like, why are you spending so much time like explaining the neuroscience? Like, just tell people what they can do. And I was like, well, there's a million books that just say, do this, do this. And like, I want to help people actually understand what's going on so they can treat themselves with a bit more compassion. And also I realized after writing the Upward Spiral and then the workbook that, you know, books aren't always the best way to to get someone to change. And so that's why I've started um, developing um, some coaching and courses that people can take based on my, um, the course I teach at UCLA. Uh, so, um, there, there are many ways I've realized that I, I want to help people engage with this material. Great. Well, I will put details of where to find you in the show notes. And, Wonderful. Um, meanwhile, thank you so much. Um, yeah, and- thank you. I, I, I think <laughs> I always love talking to someone who really has a genuine interest, uh, in the material. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, Share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week.